Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Rebecca Heisman. Uh, She's the author of Flight Paths, um, How a Passionate and Quirky Group of Pioneering Scientists Solved the Mystery of Bird Migration, which sounds really, really interesting. Rebecca is a freelance science writer based in Walla Walla, Washington, and she's got a particular interest in birds and ornithology. She's written for publications such as the Audubon Society, the American Bird Conservancy, and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. So, Rebecca, welcome. Thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, tell me a bit about your your history and how you got into birds, and then I want to ask you about your current work. Yeah, okay. So, my history. I originally thought I was going to be an ornithologist. I wanted to be a scientist who studied birds when I was an undergraduate. But then shortly after finishing my undergraduate degree, I realized that I actually liked talking and writing about other people's research much more than I liked having to be in charge of my own research. So I ended up working in environmental education for a while and then found my way into science communication and science writing. And prior to the COVID pandemic, I was working full time for the American Ornithological Society, which is the big professional organization for scientists who study birds in North America. They you know, publish scientific journals and provide research grants, things like that. I was their communications person. And so I was doing a lot of reading the new scientific papers they were publishing and promoting them with press releases and blog posts. And that's how the idea for this book came about. Okay. Um, So what has been solved? What what were the mysteries surrounding uh, bird migration and what's been figured out? Oh, honestly, there's been so many steps over the years. It's hard to point to one big mystery and say, this is the mystery that we've solved. But going all the way back to, you know, at one point, we didn't even understand that birds did fly back and forth between continents. So the book kind of starts with how how did we figure out that that was going on? And then all the questions that have evolved from there. And where it is now is just that we still are working on gathering detailed information for each migratory species about the different areas that they rely on over the course of each year, their wintering grounds and their breeding grounds and the the stopovers that they use during migration. Because for declining species, we really need to understand all the parts of their annual cycle. And so that's, you know, we've, that's sort of been the progression is just figuring out that birds migrate way back a hundred or you know, more than a century ago to getting, drilling down to more and more and more detailed data as, and using a variety of methods to do it as the decades have gone on. Yeah, I, uh, I thought some birds are heavy enough where you could put a tracker on them 
and see where they go. So are there birds like that where uh, we know where they go all year long? Yeah, there's a number of different tracking devices, the little backpacks that you could stick on a bird that are in use. And some of them are so tiny that they can be used on very small birds. So yeah, there's satellite transmitters, some of which are heavy enough, you know, they transmit out data and so they need an antenna and all this stuff and they're heavy enough that they can be used on fairly large birds. Like one of the famous ones is a bar-tailed godwit, which is a bird maybe the size of a football and they use satellite transmitters to prove that it makes a nonstop flight across the Pacific Ocean from Alaska to New Zealand in the fall. And then we also have other types of tracking devices, which can be much, much, much smaller. And in some cases, because they're so small and the components are so minimal, you have to recapture the bird and get the gadget off of it to download the data. But those can be put on much smaller birds like warblers to see where they're going over the course of a year. So what's been observed of the of the uh, taggable birds, where the fences that they've gone that were interesting or unusual? Well, in a lot of cases, even before we put the tag on, we had a, a general idea of what their winter range was just from people seeing it there. Like we could say, okay, we know that this species typically spends the winter in Colombia. But what the tracking devices are often helpful for is getting detailed information about different populations within a species. Do they all go to the same place? Are you know different? Are different breeding populations ending up in different places for the winter? Because again, it's that level of detail that we need to really figure out um, how to target conservation efforts effectively, especially when you have different populations in a species where some are declining and some are not, and we're trying to figure out why. That's called migratory connectivity, and that's sort of the cutting edge of where a lot of this work is being done now. Well, what do you mean? Where are the populations going down? Are they just not spawning enough or breeding enough, or where, where is the drop-off occurring? Well, it, it depends on the species. Overall, there was a study that came out a few years ago that showed that there are about 3 billion with a B fewer birds in North America than there were in 1970, which is about a 30% decline, which is just staggering. And the, probably the biggest factor involved there is habitat loss. But for any individual species, you know, we have detailed data for different populations. So we might look at a species of warbler and say, gee, where these warblers breed in the Appalachian Mountains, their numbers are going down. But there's this other population that breeds over by the Great Lakes and they're doing fine and we're not sure why. And so we need to put trackers on birds from both of those populations to see, like, are they using different places when they leave for the winter? And is that why one is having problems and another's not? So, yeah, that's where a lot of the work is being done. Or uh, are some populations going up while others going down or all going down? Yeah, there's definitely populate species and populations within species that are doing well or, or even increasing. And so there's, I, I feel like you're asking for a more a more general answer and it's hard to give one because it varies so much from species to species. Well, I mean, in general, bird populations are way down, like you mentioned. Yeah. So even though some may be increasing, the vast majority. Are. So is it true that although some populations are increasing, the vast majority are still declining? Yes. I mean, it, it varies. So if you look at that 3 billion birds paper that showed that there are 3 billion birds now, that wasn't just looking at migratory birds. It was looking at all birds in North America. And, you know, there are certain groups like ducks that have increased because in the case of ducks, it's because a lot of people want to hunt them. So there's a lot of interest in making sure that there are sustainable duck populations out there. But yes, overall, I think it's fair to say that the majority of migratory bird species are in decline. What about their habitats? I know that there's habitat destruction, but one type of bird, if there's enough of them, muscle in another bird's territory and take it over? Has that been observed? Sort of. There's there's been some there's been some interesting examples of bird species that are really closely related. Um if one is declining Another closely related species might start coming into the area and hybridizing with the other one. And eventually the more common one can kind of hybridize the less common one out of existence, which is interesting. 
Okay, but are they they're not particularly aggressive about territory and taking over other territories like some animals may do. Well, you know, there are examples of that, like with um. So we're getting away from migratory birds now, but with spotted owls, which I think a lot of people are familiar with in the Western U.S., barred owls, which were originally only in the, in the Eastern U.S., have been moving west, and they tend to be more aggressive and are able to, you know, eat a wider variety of prey and things like that. So they are moving into spotted owl territory and causing problems. So there are examples like that. Yeah. Okay. And then in the migration patterns of birds, um, do they evenly spend their time in one place and then another in another? Or, you know, do some species spend like the majority of their time one place and migrate quickly and then, uh, you know, spend a lot of time sitting in another place? Mm. I think it's hard to make really broad generalizations because there are so many species of migratory bird and each one is really unique in their in their annual cycle. But in general, a lot of migratory birds spend much more time in the on their wintering grounds than they do on their breeding grounds. So we might think of birds that breed here in North America as being sort of our birds, but they actually spend a much higher percentage of the year in South America. And this is especially extreme for birds who breed in the Arctic. In the spring in the Arctic, there is this amazing flush of insects, which is great for raising baby birds, which is why a lot of birds bother to fly all the way to the Arctic to have their babies. But that spring might only last for a few weeks and then they're off to South America again. So, yeah. So what uh, particular migratory birds, let's say, were the most interesting to you or had the, I don't know, yeah, the most uh, quirky nature or interesting things about them? Yeah, well, I mentioned the bar-tailed godwit already, which is a shorebird. I still find it mind-boggling that there's a bird that takes off in Alaska and doesn't touch down again until it gets to New Zealand. And there's a lot of examples of birds that do really amazing, extreme things like that that I talk about in the book. There's a species of goose called the bar-headed goose in Asia that migrates over the tops of the Himalayan mountains, the highest altitude bird migration in the world. And then at the other end of the size scale from like a big shorebird, like a bar-tailed godwit, you've got this tiny bird called the black hole warbler that weighs about the same size as a ballpoint pen and they breed in Canada and New England and they spend the winter in South America and to get from New England to South America they just launch themselves out over the Atlantic Ocean and spend three days flying over the Atlantic until they touch down in South America which for a bird that tiny is just a really incredible feat. Okay um, so what's uh, in in your book what uh, what particular birds are you analyzing in terms of their migration and you know what are some of the main concepts in the book? I don't want to spoil it for people, but also want to get them interested. <laughs> yeah. So I have to say the book is not so much about migrating birds and what they do. I mean, it, it is about that, obviously, but it's also really about the ways that we've studied them and the people who have studied them and figured out their secrets over time. So the structure of the book, basically, I devote a chapter to each of the major methods that we've used to study bird migration, beginning with bird banding and going through those different backpack tracking devices that we've talked about and ending up with things like high volume genetic sequencing and analyzing isotopes and bird feathers. And so it's really going into the history and the science behind each of those and telling some of the stories of the people who've, who figured them out along the way. Okay. You know, offline, I had spoken to you about, uh, you know, how birds, I guess, use, they can read the magnetic fields of the earth and that helps yes. migrate yeah. any, into, the, into any of the, um, you know, the quantum biology aspects or, uh, you know, how they're able to perceive magnetic fields? I really did not. The book is not about how birds navigate, but that is a really cool area. Birds have so many different means of navigation. They can, you know, navigate using the orientation of the stars in the sky. But you're absolutely right. Birds also can sense the Earth's magnetic field. And we're still, there's there's some good theories now, like you said, that have to do with quantum mechanics. We're still figuring that out. 
one thing that I did, one story that relates to that that I did get into in the book is there was a guy named Bill Cochran who in the, in the 1970s put a radio transmitter on a thrush migrating through Illinois. A thrush is a large songbird. And this was the 70s. The radio transmitter only had a range of a few miles, but he actually followed this bird in a station wagon with a radio receiver sticking out of the top from Illinois all the way up into Canada. And because he was able to stick with this one bird for so long and see how its heading changed when it set off for its migratory flight each evening, he could see how that heading changed as the bird's position changed relative to magnetic north. And so that provided some of the first in the field evidence the birds were able to sense the magnetic field. Hmm. Okay. Um, are there any particular birds that are local to you that you study because it's really convenient to do so? Like they're right in your yard or they're right in your area and you can see where they go? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that I personally study birds. I'm a, I'm a bird watcher, but not an ornithologist. But certainly when I was researching the book, I live in eastern Washington. So Montana is a fairly short drive for me. And I was very fortunate that there was some very interesting research going on in Montana. So I was able to drive out to, for example, the site that where they did the largest ever project to study migrating birds using um, microphones that record the nocturnal flight calls of birds passing overhead. So that was really cool. I went out to where that microphone array had been deployed. And then I also in Montana was able to go out into the field with some researchers who were putting satellite transmitters on long-billed curlews, which is another large shorebird species and the name long-billed curlew is a good description they have this this incredibly long beak they're very ridiculous looking so yeah those were very fun experiences you talked about calls so uh do birds use different calls in different parts of their migratory path to signal things to signal other birds yeah so a lot of songbirds actually migrate at night which i think a lot of people aren't aware of and many species make unique calls during these nighttime migratory flights that they don't make at other times that are called nocturnal flight calls. And so one way that people have studied migration is by putting out microphones to record these calls to get a sampling of what birds are passing overhead. And scientists are still studying and trying to figure out the functions of some of these calls. They found that birds that follow similar migratory routes tend to have similar nocturnal flight calls regardless of how closely related they are so they think they might be a way for birds to kind of find and stick with other birds who are heading to similar places which is interesting hmm. okay does anyone know again if the calls change depending on their path let's say you know some are migrating to mexico and then you know when it gets uh when it gets really warm they migrate back up here so they use different calls on the down versus the up i don't believe so no that'd be a really interesting question it's it's a little bit hard to study the details of nocturnal flight calls, but I know there are some people who are working on things like, can we put a microphone on a bird to record the calls that it's making while it flies at night? So maybe we'll have more information about that in the coming years. Oh, so even day versus night, uh, like that array that exists to capture people at night, capture birds at night or only? Well, as I said, uh, most most songbirds migrate at night, so they they rest and refuel during the day, and then they're flying at night. So that's when they're making these nocturnal flight calls. Right. Well, I've seen at dusk. I don't know what kind of birds they are. I think there's like grackles here or something. But you know, they're in the trees. Sometimes there's like hundreds of them all talking to each other. It seems like six o'clock is like coffee time when they hang out and talk. <laughs> um, has anyone put arrays in trees where the you know the migratory birds are not in the act of migrating, but they're hanging out and planning to go? Do their calls change, let's say, as the time to migrate approaches? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So those grackles probably aren't migratory. They're just going to roost in the evening and, as you said, kind of gossiping and catching up from the day. 
migratory birds, though, they do, as you said, kind of gather and get ready to leave on migration. That's called staging. And so I don't know if there's different calls that are used to find each other during staging versus migration or staging for migration versus when they're en route. That would be really interesting for someone to study. Yeah. And any questions that you're uh, you're looking for the appropriate researcher that's doing the research on? Like, do you do you have your hands on a lot of the projects that are out there right now surrounding migratory birds? Or like, how do you find things to write about? Or are you always connected to the community and always? Yeah, well, I was really fortunate in that, as I mentioned, I used to work for the American Ornithological Society, which is the big professional organization that most of the, the bird scientists in North America are a part of. So that had already brought me into contact with a lot of the the researchers working on these sorts of questions. So when I left that job and decided to write the book, I already had a really good starting point of knowing who was kind of doing what in the ornithology world in the U.S., which was really fun. Okay. Any uh, interesting feedback on the book that you've gotten from readers? Yeah, I've heard from a lot of people who've really liked it. Obviously, a lot of bird watchers have found it really interesting, but I think, and, and I love bird watchers, I am a bird watcher, but I almost find it most gratifying when someone tells me that they're they're not a bird watcher or a science person, but they still found the book really interesting and really enjoyed it. And I think it's sort of interesting. It does it touches on a lot of the major scientific and technological advances of the of the last hundred years or so, because so many of them have been borrowed from by ornithologists. So the book touches on the development of radar during World War II and the space race and artificial intelligence and the human genome project and all of these things. So I think anyone with a general interest in sort of science and technology would find it pretty cool, even if you're not, even if you don't think that you're a bird person. Has anyone told you, oh, this is for the birds? <laughs> no, I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah. What material uh, did you find was really important or revealing as you collected it for the book? Like, what are some things that you learned by writing the book that you didn't know? Ooh, I think my favorite sort of obscure method for studying bird migration that I was not familiar with before I started researching the book is one called moon watching, which is before they had weather radar, which they used to study migration patterns or all of these little tracking devices. In the, I, I mentioned most birds migrate at night. So in the 40s and 50s, a guy down in Louisiana came with a way to study bird migration patterns just by pointing a telescope at the full moon during migration and counting the silhouettes of birds passing in front of it. So that was really fun to write about. And in terms of materials, I was very fortunate that all of these old, old many of the ornithology journals are over 100 years old and they're all archived online. So it's very easy to go in and find these papers from the 1920s or the 1940s to kind of figure out the history of all these methods and how they were developed. So it was, it was like a fun detective expedition going to these online archives and digging up these really old, interesting papers. Well, how is the loss of uh, darkness you know, in a lot of cities, uh, hurt birds' migratory ability or effect? You know. Yeah, that's a great question. So migrating birds at night are attracted to artificial light in cities. We don't really understand why. People, researchers are still studying this, trying to figure out what it is about light that draws them in, that it can throw them off course, it can disorient them, they can get confused in, a, in an urban environment and collide with buildings, which can be fatal. And so there's a lot of work going on with trying to predict when big migratory flights are going to happen and to encourage building managers in big cities and migratory flyways to dim their lights on on big migration nights to try and save birds. It's mm, good. Yeah. Uh, what what happens when um, a place that they're going to migrate to has been eradicated? What do the birds do? Do they go somewhere else or do they remain confused and just hang out there and die or what, what happens? Oh, probably some of both. I think that does probably increase mortality a great deal if a bird is 
say, on migration and is depending on arriving at some great stopover site where it can rest and refuel and this bird arrives there exhausted to find only a parking lot, that bird might be a goner. But in some cases, they might be able to find some alternate some alternative habitat nearby. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard certain birds will go to the exact spot that they went to the year before or many years before. Have you observed that with birds? Like how precise are they in their patterns? Yeah, it varies from species to species, but definitely some birds do return to the same nest site year after year. Yeah. So um, where are you going to go from here? What's what's next that you want to learn about and write about in the world of birds? Ooh, I mean, I would I would love to write a second book and I, I have some ideas. So yeah, stay tuned. And I, in the meantime, I also do a lot of writing for places like you said, like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and the Audubon Society Magazine, places like that. So I really enjoy that I get to write about birds as my career. Okay, so uh, just to refresh, uh, where can people go to find all your writings and to pick up your book and everything? Yeah, I am kind of on and off with social media. So if you're interested in following my writing and any updates about future book projects and stuff, the best thing to do is to go to RebeccaHeisman.com. And I have an email list there that you can sign up for. I only send an email out once every couple of months. I won't spam you, but that includes updates about what I've been writing and events that I'm doing and recommendations of things that I've read and found interesting. So that that's the best way to find me and keep up with me. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you yeah. so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.